to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. So as she speaks today, um, can we just warmly welcome her? Uh, she's, she's an amazing person to say the least, but let's just welcome her. <laughs> Okay, very stressful. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, actually, I'm so happy that my nephew and Pastor Daniel and Pastor Andre actually prayed for me uh, before this too. Because actually, Pastor Andre asked me, I was like, hey, so you ever spoken in church? I was like, uh, no, actually, you know. Uh, so I realized this is a big first. And um, so, yeah, I know. Um, but anyway, yes, we're all here together, and His grace is sufficient. So, um, anyway, so I just got back from the U.S. and I and I don't believe in jet lag, so mostly it doesn't exist. Um, and uh, and um, yeah, it was it was actually really wonderful. Um, I had a chance to. Um, they asked me to go and speak a little bit about what we do at um, MVPC and and just share with the Singaporean community in the sort of center and east coast of the of the U.S. So it's like four cities in three days, or no, sorry. Three, no, sorry, that's wrong. It's the other way around. It's three cities in four days, actually. Um, and uh, and I also got to see my grandma in uh, in Los Angeles, who's 98, going to be 99 years old, which was actually my personal kind of like mission to <clears throat> to be able to go and do. Um, and uh, I'm just so happy to say that she's so well. And, uh, you know, she has a personal trainer and, you know... Uh, <laughs> was telling me which, like, restaurant we should go to in Hollywood, and I was like, oh, I love this. Like, I don't even know these places. Um, but that was, that was so great. Um, and on the, on the work front, actually, it was just to really share with the Singaporeans, um, you know, what, was, what is our vision for Singapore as a city of good? And um, I guess what I share with you today uh, as we talk about um, justice begins with me, um, loving you, uh, which is the sort of title of... Um, of the of the sharing today, uh, it, it is really to kind of um, share a little bit of like the heart of like what that city of good actually is about. Because I believe that you know God has um, allowed me to serve at this particular point in time, you know, at MVPC to just bring about a certain conviction of the kind of um, uh, the kind of city that we really want to build and the kind of country, you know, that the kind of society that we want um, to to have. Um, and that is something that lifts people's spirits, that captures their hearts and minds with a with a with a vision of um, who we are as a people, not just you know a smart nation, but a giving nation, not just in it for me, but you know in it for you. Um, you know something that really talks about how businesses can be a force for good um, and not just a profit extraction um, mechanism, and really also about the kind of leaders, um, the, le the kind of leaders that we want in society, uh, people who will truly put the greater good and others above themselves, um, but also take care of themselves along the way because we know the, the journey is uh, often rough and long. Um, and, uh, and behind all of that, I suppose, really is a, is a sense of, um, yeah, is a sense of what, what justice is about. And, and, you know, I believe that justice is rooted in love, um, and I believe that... that um, that love is really Jesus' love for us. Uh, 
And, and I think today, you know, we have a very diverse uh, gathering here. We've got different ages, different life stages, different everything. Um, and I'm going to kind of go through a kind of a wide range of different experiences, share a bunch of different stories. Um, but I really just hope that at the end of this, that each of you will see that there is something in, in your own life. It could be in your family. It could be in your household. It could be in your community, in your school, you know, in your office, in your workplace, amongst your peers. Um, but there is something that you can do to be a vessel of God's love and God's justice in the world. Okay. Um, so maybe a little bit about me um, then. So this is a picture of a village that um, I, I used to live in in Nepal because I, I used to think that to do justice, you probably needed to do it very far away in a very disadvantaged place. Um, and, uh, and so that was me at 18 years old. I thought, you know, the Peace Corps would accept me, but they wouldn't because I had no, you know, qualifications. Um, so I went to be an intern at the conservation park in Nepal. Um, instead, uh, and and so I could uh, then basically volunteer teach um, in the school, and I could then do sort of like research later that kind of became my research for um, uh, university. I was trained originally as an economist, and then I decided, nah, I don't really like these economists that I met out here. I'd rather be an anthropologist and study culture and uh, and everything else. So I, I switched into into that and. And I think my life in some ways has been sort of marked by just always wanting to be um, about who is not at the table and whose voice is not really being heard um, and how I could be um, a public educator uh, about some of these issues uh, and, and to reach out to just share with people what, what the issues were and what we could potentially do about it. So um, I guess the, some of the stories that I, that I, that I shared um, this morning will be a little bit about that. But I also believe that fundamentally, you know, uh, I have a role in the family um, and I have a role as a citizen in society and that's, and that's also all of us. So um, the thing that I would like to um, remind you actually today is that this is not meant to be just me speaking and you listening. Um, I would very much actually like this to be an active reflection um, actually on your on your part too and um, this uh, what is this this is an orange yes although the color is not orange um, the this is an orange and um, and the significance of this orange whenever I see this orange is I remember a story that a friend of mine told me um, he's a super you know type a mixed martial arts guy who was trying to get some peace and so he went to this monk and said how do I get some peace and then the monk gave him an orange and um, <laughs> And, uh, and then he said, what am I supposed to do with this orange? And then he said, okay, well, um, you, you look at this orange and then you peel the orange in your brain. For one minute. Okay, you just focus and you peel the orange in your brain for one minute. And I thought, okay, that's a really good kind of like, you know, slow down, you know, take it, take it one step at a time kind of uh, exercise. So I would like to actually just do a little twist on this story and give you an option to do one of two things. One of two things. One is you can take for one minute to peel the orange in your brain. Okay. Um, and the other option is for you to look at your neighbor in the eye for one minute in silence, okay? <laughs> two options. What are the two options? Peel an orange in, in your brain for one minute or to look at your neighbor in the eye in silence. It's always the hardest part for one minute. Okay? All right, and this, let me get there just a minute. Okay, get ready everyone. 
Okay, get ready. Okay, one minute. Everybody, quiet. Okay, uh, I will do a countdown of three, and then we will do one minute, and then you will either peel the orange in your brain in silence for one minute, focus, or you will look at your neighbor in the eye for one minute in silence. Everybody got it? Yes? Yes? Okay, great. All right, so one minute starts in three, two, one. That'll be 20 seconds. Yeah. 10 seconds to go. Four, three, two, one. <sighs> <sighs> okay. All right. Okay, everybody's still with us? Okay, good. Um, any, uh, any, um, any quick words to describe what that was about, how that felt? Anyone? A little strange? Slightly awkward? How many of you chose to peel the orange in your brain? Okay, about... Okay, good number. And then those who chose to look at the neighbor in the eye for one minute. So we're, this is pretty good. You know, this is um, about half-half. And I say this is very uh, key because um, usually the older the audience, the more orange peelers. Um, and so we have a very, you know, demographically mixed kind of like crowd. I, I think it must mean that, you know. Um, so so here, here's the thing. Um, the reason why I added the exercise of look at somebody in the eye for um, a minute to this exercise, the, the first exercise is incredibly important, which is about just attention and focus. But the other exercise, which is about looking somebody in the eye for a minute, is something that I realize is so powerful that we actually very rarely ever do which is to actually look at and acknowledge somebody in their being, in their person, in their worth for even just one minute. And I, I've given, I've done this exercise once in a, in a large group of educators and I realized the woman started, there was a woman who did that and actually started crying like in that. And, and I, went to, I went to talk to her afterwards and I said, uh, are, you, are you okay? I kind of noticed you were, you were crying. Um, and then she sort of looked at her shoes, and then she looked at the sky, and then she looked at the shoes, and then she just said, you know, she's like, I can't remember the last time somebody looked at me in the eye for a minute. You know? And she worked at a school. She was married. You know? All these things which you would think you have so much opportunity for interaction, but actually we live in such a lonely and, you know, separate kind of society. So um, an act of love and justice actually that day would have just been the person who looked her in the eye for a minute and said, I acknowledge you, I see you, you know, you are a person to me, you know.
So let's, okay, so everyone be here now. That's good, okay. So um, first quick one then. So how many of you know who this girl is? Any, 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 any thoughts? Uh, only if you have studied American history will you be possibly uh, aware of who this girl is. Ruby, anyone? Ruby, Ruby Bridges, right? Ruby Bridges, and, and who was Ruby Bridges? Ruby Bridges was the first girl who was um, uh, accompanied by uh, US state marshals to a desegregated school in the United States in 1960. This was actually 10 years after the Supreme Court um, uh, uh, Board of Education um, ruling, which said that we are going to desegregate schools. But Ruby um, was the girl whose parents decided, you know what, she passed all the tests, even though they were kind of uh, not so um, uh, easy to pass because of the cultural references, um, you know, to go to this school. But she, but she went to this school. And, um, and every day when she was being uh, accompanied to school, actually, she would, she would see people who were just uh, shouting epithets at her, um, saying, go home, you know, all we want for Christmas is a clean white school, um, and, and things like that. And, and, and it, was, it got to the state where, you know, uh, Ru Ruby um, actually was allowed by the president, can you imagine that the president has to make this decision, to bring her own food to school because people said, we're going to poison you um, for poisoning our schools. And, and what was so amazing, actually, um, about this, uh, this whole experience was that, was that when um, the child psychologist, who was a Harvard professor, Robert Coles, uh, went to interview Ruby uh, and said, Ruby, what do you, what do you think about uh, what's happening right now, actually? Um, Ruby, Ruby, um, Ruby said something which was uh, truly Christ-like. She says, I don't blame them. She's like, you know, you know th they don't really know what they're doing. Hmm. It's amazing, you know, right? What did, what did Jesus say on the cross? You know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a kid's version of basically saying the same thing. And it led, um, actually, Robert Coles to, to change his course of work and actually focus on this whole idea that, you know, children actually have moral intelligence. You know, and, and certainly, if children have moral intelligence, um, then do we? Then so 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 do we? You know, I mean, it's 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 innate. It is within all of us. Um, and next one, please. And I and you know, there is all the the prophets and the law, but but what is the what is the law of the prophets all summed up as really? Um, you know, and can we can we just read this together um, from verse thirty six, uh, teacher? What is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And what's really interesting, actually, in uh, this whole story of Ruby Bridges is that, um, you know, in many ways, the two heroes, I think, of the story that made um, Ruby's life um, feel better and for things to really shift were two people, Barbara Henry and Lloyd Anderson um, Foreman. And nobody's really heard of 
I mean, very few people have heard of Ruby Bridges, I guess, in this room, but even fewer people will ever know Barbara Henry and Lloyd Anderson Foreman. But Barbara Henry was a teacher from Boston who said, I will teach her. Because the other teacher said, I don't think so. And Lloyd Anderson Foreman was a Methodist minister who said, Mike, I'm, I, will, I would like the privilege of bringing my child to school. And so he took his five-year-old to kindergarten too and said, I'm going in. And that's kind of what you need sometimes, is just these individuals that are just deciding in their own sphere of influence in, as a teacher in the classroom, as a parent of a child who wants to get their kid to school, that you can do the right thing. Um, and actually what's important to remember in all of these things too is that it was those silent and quiet acts of love um, that, that really showed what is the light in this darkness. Um, it is not a big sign saying anything. It wasn't any big, you know, hoo-ha or hurrah, you know, but it was really just the commitment of people to be the light. Okay. Um, and so we remember uh, that it is about loving our neighbor as ourselves. And why do we do that? You know, it's because, it's because we are so filled with God's love for us. So I have three um, little lessons from the, from the journey so far. Um, and the first lesson is, actually, what, what do we need to pursue this, this vision of justice is, is actually a new vision of the other. You know, we are all in our own little, you know, tribes and silos and groups and things like that. But, and we all have people who are very different from us, people who we don't agree with, people who are, you know, just kind of strange or don't really know how to talk to and stuff. But actually what we need is a, is a fundamentally new vision um, of what that looks like. And, and I want to share with you just three examples, um, short examples of what that dream, this, this wild dream of, of, uh, of this new reality, um, you know, what, what that could look like. So the first one um, is about a prison in Brazil uh, that I visited uh, for their 40th anniversary of this prison. And um, I don't know if you can read it there, but it says, you enter a human being, your crime is left at the door. Now, this uh, prison in Brazil defines crime in a radically new way. They have a radical new vision for what crime is about and what the response to crime is. Now, what do you guys think of when you think of crime? Crime is breaking law, doing something wrong, you know. But they define crime as the violent refusal to love and be loved. Crime is, is the violent refusal to love and be loved. A criminal is someone who is violently refusing to love and be loved. And therefore, the response to crime should be to restore that person to a state where they can once again love and be loved. That's that radical new vision that they put into this prison to change the way that the whole prison operated. So it is not just about, you know, to go in there and to dehumanize you as a number, to punish. There is, there is, an, there is an element. It's not that this prison is without consequences. There, there are consequences um, you know, of, of the crime. People need to be sentenced to the normal federal prison. They apply as if they're going to university. They apply <laughs> to go to this prison, and they have to write an application, and they need to get a sponsor you know, in order to uh, be accepted into this prison. And their sponsor is preferably a parent or a family member who has agreed to say, I will walk with you on this journey back to wholeness. Or 
I am willing to accept a volunteer godparent, godparents, who will adopt me and walk with me on this journey back. And their job is to literally visit them on a regular basis, write to them, and remind them that they are a human being and not a criminal. So if you think about it, these, and what's amazing about this, um, what's amazing about this prison actually too, is that they um, have the lowest rates of recidivism, which not, not unsurprising, I suppose. Um, and they actually are, are, are run in not just sort of like a, a special, you know, subsection of Brazil somewhere. They have 80 of these prisons actually operational throughout Brazil, and they're expanding them um, through other countries, and a version of this actually exists in Singapore. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's run actually by a Catholic, it's a Catholic kind of like initiative, so the community, the Catholic community in Brazil, which most people in Brazil are Catholic, you know, um, really comes alongside um, to, to walk with them, you know, actually too. So a lot of it really is about how do we see, instead of just, you know, the problem, what is the possibility, right? You know, how do we reframe things um, to be that? So my second story actually here is around um, uh, a girls program that uh, that uh, I started. It's originally started as a girls program. Now it's sort of like women, youth, children, you know, um, too. But it's essentially a mentoring program, and um, we have as the the uh, the focus, I guess, of of this, you know, just to befriend and walk with uh, people who are in transition. So you might be in a youth guidance program or in a home, you know, or maybe even in prison. Um, and, and our goal, which is what we, we always, uh, always tell them that, you know, our KPI is not number of people in the program. You know, the KPI, when we started, because it was just a girls program at the time, was you are important enough that they are going to invite you to their wedding or their graduation, you know? And, and that, then that's the goal, you know? That, that could take a year, it could take a lot of years, it doesn't really matter, but the point is the cultivation of a quality relationship where you are an important person in their life and they're an important person in your life. Um, and so, of course, when we, you know, when, we, when we went to our first wedding, we were like, oh my gosh, we now have to change the KPI, you know? Um, but the new KPI actually then became, you will be the person that teaches, their, uh, teaches them to help their kids learn to read. Because it's then about how do we break the cycle for the next generation. And, um, and that is then, you know, so that vision of like what it is that we want to see actually is, is uh, expressed um, in, in goals uh, and targets that are not just number driven, but quality of relationship driven. Okay. Um, so second lesson then. Um, is this concept of dangerous generosity. Now, that sounds like a very strange concept, especially coming from somebody who's, you know, all about, like, giving and all this kind of stuff, too, right? But, you know, what we do see, actually, um, you know, uh, in the Bible, too, are some warnings, you know, against giving when, you know, you haven't forgiven people, right? You know, or, or giving maybe in a way that, you know, you might be a little bit more about yourself, you know, than it is than it is necessarily about the other person. Maybe it's just a way for you to kind of look good or feel good about yourself. You know, um, and and really just asking ourselves. You know that that exists on a personal level, um, but it also and uh, more dangerously actually exists on a corporate level. So um, you know, one of the things I I, uh, I don't know why there's that strange little 
uh, box up there. But anyway, never mind. Um, you know, so I, I was back. I was back at Harvard last week, um, and like just being a, the super nerd that I am, I spent a chunk of my time in the bookstore and just you know was trying to look up like all the different books I really want to read, kind of going forward. And you know, and I also wanted to see what are people at the in this echelons of this ivory tower actually also thinking about and writing about right now. Um, and this was one book that really caught my eye, which was called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Now, I don't know if you can read the, the quote within there, but let me just uh, read that for you. I sit on a man's back, choking him and making him carry me. Yet I assure myself and others that I am sorry for him and wish to lighten his load by all means possible, except for getting off his back. Leo Tolstoy. Um, and, you know, the example that uh, uh, Giri Haradas actually gives in this, which I think was really uh, struck home for me, um, was about the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I don't know if you know last, I think it was earlier this year, in fact, uh, the mayor of New York uh, filed a several hundred million dollar lawsuit against seven pharmaceuticals um, in the United States to cover the expenses of the um, opioid um, addiction, and now they call it the opioid epidemic. You know, essentially the people who are just addicted to painkillers. Um, and, and they uh, realized that they, they, they did a study and 27 million um, people in the United States actually abuse painkillers. And Bill Blasio actually said, look, you know, we're suing you guys because the number of deaths by overdose from painkillers is actually more than the deaths of a combined number of deaths by homicide and by car accidents in our city. And, you know, if you follow this thought around cities being some of the loneliest and crowded places ever, you can kind of imagine, like, you know, that that might in fact be so, that people just are constantly like busy, busy, and, and um, competing and comparing their life with others' lives. And, you know, if all you ever see is somebody else's great life, you know, and, and your situation, which you know is not as great in comparison, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we measure up, you know? And, and really this, this, uh, this opioid epidemic, as, as we call it, um, enriched very uh, significant pharmaceuticals and you know they name halls and they name galleries and they name large buildings <coughs> at Harvard um, and I asked myself you know should we be thinking about means and ends shouldn't we be thinking about means and ends but if I take this and take this a little bit closer to um, to home actually I can have the next slide uh, you know a, a couple of years ago, I was also um, involved with uh, UN Women work. It was on around trafficking, and we didn't only look at sex trafficking; we actually looked at labor trafficking issues too. So, you know, th uh, conditions relating to migrant workers, domestic workers, as well as construction and, and other kinds of um, uh, workers too. And and we realized actually this is a picture from, um, in fact, one of the hotels. You know that uh, were involved in there too, because we realized that actually many of the construction workers that were actually part of the supply chain—they were not employed by us, but they were part of the supply chain. You know, were in fact being, uh, were paying labor brokers, labor agents, anywhere from six months to two years of their salary, just to get their jobs. 
can you imagine paying six months to two years of your salary to somebody else just to get your job? And that's not when you actually had the money. So it means you probably had to sell your home. You probably had to you know, sell your land or take out a big loan you know, in order to finance that. And that was something that was part of our supply chain. And so, you know, this was an outreach that we did then with, uh, with, with, with HealthServe. Um, it was also, there were some specific engagements that we, that we did with the construction companies, but we couldn't control, in a sense, that at the time because we found out later. But what we could control was actually how our own housekeeping staff, who are also recruited from some of these, you know, countries, actually did come in. And so we did that with three-way, you know, open, transparent contracts with like fees that were you know, that were capped. And also, you're very clear about if you're paying for something, what did you get? What are you paying for? You know. So, you know, there's 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 a lot that we can do as as business people, you know, too. I mean, business business owners or people within, um, you know, the, the the society within the business realm to to deal with that. And I want to just briefly touch on um, this whole sphere of the economics of mutuality, which, which really says that, you know, we, and it actually began when the president of Mars, you know, Mars, the confectionery kind of like a company, asked the company, what is the correct level of profit? Which is very interesting, the correct level of profit, because doesn't economics just say profit maximize? But if you profit maximize, you know, then you end up taking two years or more out of some guy's salary, you know, in the meantime, or you end up sort of like pumping cities full of opioids, and is that really doing the right thing? So he said, it, they said, they, they wound it back and they said, look, maybe we need to think about how we can take more account of how this affects people, you know, um, and how we build human capital, not just financial capital. And human capital is the skills that people build up as a result of working you know, with us and, and through our, our things. And how we build up social capital, which is around trust and relationships in society. Because, you know, when, when there's more trust in society, there's more business that happens, right? There's more numbers of transactions. So they, they started to break it down, and then, and then they looked at planet capital, you know, environmental capital. How is it that, that, you know, we can be sustainable over the long term by securing the resources that we have? Because if, you know, the cocoa farmers go out of business and we strip all the, <laughs> we strip all the sort of uh, the, the, the crops and so the, the land is depleted, you know, we're not going to be in business for the long term either. So they rethought their whole business model around what they call the economics of mutuality. And if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to, to take a look at it. Then... Lastly, actually, and, and maybe we come back to the uh, place where we started. Um, and that is, is that there is no one-size-fits-all for how do I practice justice, you know, um, in society? How do I practice justice in my family? There's, that is something that really I believe that is the Lord, that Lord has to convict us. The Lord has to tell us what that is, and the Lord has to, to speak that truth actually, um, to us. But what I think is so fascinating, actually, is this, is this idea of rest. Um, and, and even in, in, in Exodus, actually, too, when, when they talk about rest and justice, there is actually a relationship between rest and justice. Um, these, so let me, let me just read this section to you, then. Um, For the six years you are to sow in your field and to harvest crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unplowed and unused. 
Let, then the poor amongst your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born under your household and the foreigner living amongst you may be refreshed. Be careful to do these things that I have said. Do not invoke the name of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. There was a relationship between allowing things to rest and not pumping, you know, everything to the to the max, you know, and and when we allow that rest, not only do we uh, refresh, you know, those who are in the system, we actually give the time and the space for others to also share in the abundance of what we have, and we don't take it all for ourselves. There is an organization in um, the Philippines, which some of you guys might have uh, known of, called um, Gawad Kalinga. Uh, run by a guy called Tony uh, Maloto. I think he was part of like Couples for Christ or something there before. Their motto at Gawad Kalinga, which does a lot of house building for the um, poor communities, is less for me, more for you, and enough for all. Less for me, more for you, and enough for all. And it is just this sense of being uh, aware of what it is that we can allow to rest what it is allow we can what it is that we can allow to be preferred to be given to the other that there can be enough for all so this is sort of the last kind of like um, part here so what do we th what is really needed um, you know for us as we renew our vision we avoid dangerous generosity and we take some personal ownership to to rest to, to make different kinds of uh, kinds of choices um, well, I bring you back to our beloved orange. Um, and, uh, and that is um, for you now to just uh, uh, take a moment, actually, and if I, if I can, just take you know, one minute um, for you to just um, be, be silent, um, to be quiet. And I'm, I'm just going to uh, offer a few questions um, and reflections. And I hope that in this um, process of um, offering these questions and reflections, um, the Lord will speak to you and the Lord will tell you what are the things that you can start doing, stop doing, do more of or do less of. And uh, I really pray that that will um, speak to you um, and guide you, you know, as you seek to love mercy and do justice. Okay. Um, so the first reflection, then, is around space and time. Many of you have seen that little game that you can play uh, to arrange all the numbers in the right order. But what happens when we fill up all the, all the blank spaces? Nothing moves. Nothing moves, you know? Sometimes we need that space. Where is the space in your life? Where do you take that time? Where do you create that space to reflect on some of these things? How could you slow down things in your life to just be aware and consider the things that are right in front of you, the things that you can immediately make choices about? And how can you listen deeply and perhaps 
beyond what's on the surface. Consider the deepest longings of your soul, the deepest needs of the world. And what are those things that are there and speaking to you? And what about the relationships that we have? In our homes, in our workplaces, in our community, are relationships marked by honor and humility, by preferring the other over ourself? How could we be more intentional about being the people who people know are Jesus' disciples because you love one another and they see it in practice? How can we say, I'm sorry more? How can we say, how, I, how can I serve you? Not, this is what you can do for me. How can we express our need and our vulnerability to others to ask for help? And how can we express gratitude to others for just being with us. I pray courage um, for you, that courage is not an absence of fear, but the cour that courage is a belief in something more important. And I pray that, that something that is more important begin to stir in your heart. And I pray that you overcome the noise of the opinions of others to know that you love justice and mercy. And I pray that you also know that you love people more than you love things and that you use things and not people. And I also pray that in our loving we can consider where and how we can love unreasonably and unconditionally and start in one place. Because fundamentally, it's the role of the church um, to create the kind of world, that, the kind of future that, that, that we need. And I, and, I, and I really mean that when I say that, that each and every one of our, our lives is that potential, is that possibility. And it is not about necessarily the great and the big things. It is about the everyday and the immediate and the small things. And it is really premised on this idea of truly knowing how, how beloved we are, how deep God's love is for, for us. And, and Henry Nouwen talks about the spiritual life as downward mobility. And that's so countercultural in the life whenever, you know, when everybody is seeking upward mobility. It is an incredible mystery of God's love that the more you are loved, the more you will see how deeply brothers and sisters in the human family are loved. And if justice is really about loving others more, 
then perhaps we need to take that first knowing of how much we are loved and then expand and express that actually out to others too. Okay. Um, so I leave you with the thought that there are not only, there are no necessarily great things, but, um, but uh, things with, that we can do with great love. Um, and lastly, um, just to remember the ultimate commandment and that by loving one another, we do the greatest justice to one another. Thank you.